Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Doors Hybrid Intelligence Podcast, where we bring together interesting people doing interesting things from the worlds of business, innovation, design, technology, and culture. My name is Lee Sankey. In this episode, we continue our exploration of optimism. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Devin DeFries and Julian Hurst from the award-winning Where Is My Transport? Now, Devon and Julian will explain exactly what Where Is My Transport is and um, what they're working on if you're not familiar with them. But this is a truly fantastic business and it's one that's delivering positive social impact across the globe uh, at scale. And as such, it makes a fantastic discussion point around this theme of optimism and even more so because what they're doing is difficult, very challenging. So I'll let the guys explain more as we get into it. They've just raised a Series A funding round of $7.5 million, and the investors include Google. So I'm super excited to hear about the inspiration for starting Where Is My Transport and taking on such a daunting challenge, and what optimism means to both them as individuals and to their work. So welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you, Lee. So where, where, where are you guys tuning in from today? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm in Cape Town in South Africa. So London is normally my base, but I'm in Mexico City at the moment. How, how come you're down, you're down there, Devin? I, I figured given the lockdown and uh, you know, seeing it coming, um, this was the best base of operation from which I could uh, perform all of my duties between Cape Town, London, and San Francisco. And so it's a pretty good time zone to be working out of. <laughs> Where is my transport? I mean, it's a super interesting company uh, whose mission has, has got, I think, is, is hugely optimistic and has massive sort of social uh, impact. And essentially, you guys are tackling the, the challenge and problems of uh, transportation networks in emerging developing uh, economies um, all over the globe. Do you, do you want to explain a bit more about? what you guys uh, do? Absolutely. Uh, so our work focuses on improving the quality of the end-to-end experience for a public transport user in an emerging market. And uh, when you think of using public transport in an emerging market, it's some usually it, it entails some combination of formal public transport services. So, you know, thinking of the London sense, uh, all of the services operated by TFL, the underground, the overground, the bus, Uh, All of those are um, formal transport services. But then you get the informal transportation uh, service providers, which are really the semi-regulated, unsubsidized, privately owned vehicles. However, the scale of that type of service, uh, those uh, informal operators, are usually between eight and ten times the size of the formal public services operated within a city. So... um, our role is to try and bring those together and make the experience for uh, the everyday citizen who's simply just trying to get from here to there uh, better, more reliable, and uh, perhaps even safer with time. And, and the, the scale of these, these networks in emerging countries is huge, isn't it? I mean, is billions of people use these, these networks. You can't use traditional tactics and tools in, in those areas, can you? No. Um, 
the, the vehicles we're talking about, um, they go by different names. So if you've ever been to uh, uh, an emerging market city uh, and, and Mexico City, where Devon is right now, uh, counts, you, you will have seen them. They're basically vans. They're minivans, um, usually 16 seats. Um, and in, in South Africa, we call them minibus taxis. Uh, in Kenya, they're called matatus. In Mexico, they're called peseros. But they all, they all work in a similar way. They are route-based, um, but there are no schedules. Um, the prices aren't fixed. Um, the frequencies aren't reliable. The routes aren't reliable. They're, it's very flexible, let's say. That's the nice way of putting it. Uh, a less nice way would be to say they're unpredictable and they're unreliable. And because they are mostly unregulated, they're often unsafe. So um, they don't behave the way something that you in London would recognize as public transport. They behave differently, which means right. that the sort of thing that you might use in London, like a city mapper app or a Google Maps app um, to navigate, to get around, those don't work with informal networks um, because the informal networks don't behave the same way. Um, and right. so one of the reasons that in these cities there is a gap, and it's a gap we're trying to fill, is because those solutions that are popular and widespread in developed markets, they just don't work there. Uh, and so that's, that's what we're doing. Our, our aim is to use the, the data we have, uh, the technology we have, and also the knowledge we have in these markets, um, having spent a long time on the ground now, mapping those networks and also conducting research. We are, we're gonna use a combination of all of that um, to fill that gap, that's the goal. So you basically provide digital tools uh, and apps to consumers to help them understand what these networks are, and you also provide data via APIs and other things to cities, local authorities, et cetera, to help Im improve, man manage this informal infrastructure. Yeah, broadly, that's it. Yeah, there are, there are, the more we dig, the more it's clear that the, there's a lot that we can do. There are a lot of holes that we can plug with the data and the tech that we've got and the experience that we have. And so now it's a question of focus. Um, and as, as Devin said, the, the goal from very early on was always to make a difference at ground level. Um, so to, to have an impact with, in Mexico City, the millions of, of people, for example, who, yeah, who struggle every day. Uh, it, they can take anywhere up to six hours of commuting a day uh, in Mexico City to earn less than 30 bucks, 30 US dollars, 30%, 40% of which you're spending on that public transport. So that's being able to improve that for the millions of people using it is a big deal. Uh, so that's the, that's the goal. So Devon, uh, how, how did you go about starting something like this? I think you started the company back in 2008. So it's been a, it's been a long journey, but what, what inspired you to, to actually try and take this on? Cause it, it seems kind of insane. You could certainly say that naivety uh, played some role in, in terms of understanding just the, the real world complexity that is the area of mobility. I mean, mobility sits at the intersection of civil society, private sector and government. Um, and then given the markets we're targeting, you put that in the middle of an emerging market. And that is quite a tough intersection to, to operate in. Um, it began under the auspices of a university thesis uh, that was a technical thesis. So we actually have to develop the system or the solution that we were proposing. And you could say the, the, uh, the origin point of, of the problem that we wanted to address was just inadequate information on public transportation services, beginning at a actually a university level, and then looking more broadly at the city that we lived in, which was Cape Town at the time. And uh, 
recognizing that when you travel abroad, uh, accessing the various options of modality that are available to you is mm. generally quite easy. I can take up my phone and even at the time I would have been able to use back in 2008, 2009, I would have been able to use Google Maps to understand the public transport network for a place like London or San Francisco or Tokyo. However, in the emerging markets still today, for over 90% of these cities, there simply is no transportation map to speak of, which is ludicrous considering that the services are out there and operating. And uh, when, you, when you start to really comprehend the scale of the challenge that we're talking about, I mean, this challenge that we're addressing, this, this challenge of public transportation is something that touches the lives of 5 billion people on earth. Mm. And approximately 4 billion of those people are also uh, entirely reliant on informal modes of transportation as some part of their, of their daily or weekly commute. Uh, but but people, but people see, seeing that, Devon, in terms of that massive global challenge, you know, most people would run a mile from that, right? But, you know, you and, you and the team have gone on to actually make a difference, build things, ship things. But what actually tipped you into actually saying, I'm, I'm going to try and do something about this? Yeah, it's maybe not the reason that people would expect. For me, uh, Where's My Transport is my third startup, but it's my first venture-backed startup. I always knew that I wished to uh, found a, a startup, a technology startup, that is my background is in engineering, um, straight out of university. And this, what began as a project, just presented the, the perfect platform uh, upon which to you know, continue pursuing solving this challenge. So it didn't actually start from a basis of, hey, here's a great business idea. It actually started from a place which I would say is in many ways fueled by hubris, right? Uh, here is an incredibly hard challenge do I think myself and my team can crack this? Right. And the discovery that I was fortunate and I, and I, I, I believe this, this will shape my career for the rest of my life is that I was able to discover what we now term social impact. But you know, this, is, this is around 2008, 2009, 2010. Uh, it wasn't really a, a, common, a common term, I would say, or as common a term back then, uh, but what, I came to learn was that there was a space in this business world where you could build something that's high tech and designed to scale, but it could also have real meaning in the world and try and create impact for communities and social groups who are often excluded or forgotten uh, in the solutions that, that, are, that are built today. It's an amazing thing to try to try and take on. What do you guys feel about optimism as, as individuals? What is optimism mean to to you would you do you see yourselves as optimistic people do you struggle with yeah. it so, so uh, julie and i were actually chatting briefly on this uh b- before the call and uh one of the things that i i notice is is common to the two of us is we both look at the fact that in every experience there is something positive you can take from it like to the to the point you were making now in terms of taking on such a huge challenge, like this challenge of informal transportation to think that we could possibly solve it. Uh, to me, I'm like, well, what's there to lose? Um, you know, I get to meet amazing people throughout this process. I get to gain incredible experience. I get to learn things at a speed that would be extremely hard uh, to be, to even have the opportunity to be exposed to learning at such a speed. Um, yeah, there's, 
there's very few negatives. I mean, if, if, you measure, if you measure the effort that you put in purely by the outcomes, sure, you could say the outcome was a failure, but that doesn't necessarily make the experience and the journey a failure or a lost cause. Mm. I think there is value to take out of, out of every experience. I think Julian uses this great, great term. It's like, you know, it's another day at school. <laughs> How about you, Julian? It's just, I, we've known each other for a while. I, I would definitely describe you as a as an optimist. You've obviously working in lots of different countries and had lots of different experiences over the last the last few years. With where is my transport? How how, how do you feel about optimism and what it means yeah. to you? So it's funny because people do describe me as an optimist, but I'm but I'm often I'm often puzzled by that. I remember when I, the first big move I made from the UK to France um, when I was in my 20s. I think from the outside, it, looked, it must have looked like a crazy thing to do, uh, the way I did it and, uh, and why I did it. And I remember people telling me I was very brave, and I didn't understand that either. It's like, this isn't, doesn't feel brave. Uh, it doesn't feel stupid either. It's just something I'm going to do, and then we'll see what the next thing is I'm going to do. And so I, the optimism thing, I thought about it. You know, what does it mean to me? I think it's a, for me, it's a mixture of, of being realistic, seeing things as they are. Otherwise, it's just blind optimism, which, is, which isn't smart. I think you have to be able to see things as they are. You have to be the kind of person that wants to solve problems and, and can solve problems, knows how to solve problems. And I also think you have to be somebody who's, who's more positive than not. Um, no one's positive all the time. But I think if you've got that realism and that problem-solving curiosity more than capability and, and you're largely a positive person, you look on the bright side of stuff, um, then yeah, I think that's that's broadly uh, that's an optimistic person. If you are prone to seeing the negative, or prone to worrying about failure, uh, or prone to I think mis misqualifying failure, I think a lot of people do that as well. They see something as failure when it's not. It's a struggle. It's difficult, uh, but it's not. You haven't failed. Uh, it's just hard. Um, you're on your way to finding out whether you'll fail or not. And so yeah, I think that's what optimism mm. means to me. I am. I don't know why. I don't know whether it's experience or education or nurture. I have no idea. Um, I am predisposed to see an opportunity, even when everything is very dark. Uh, I, I'm always looking for the angle. You know, there's something here that we can learn, or you know, again, every day is a school day. Uh, and, and did you and did you pick that up from? Where, where do you think that comes from? Do you think, you, you know, did you see that in other people? Were you, did you pick that up from your parents? You just think you're wired like that? I think probably all of the above. I think it's probably a, a little bit of everything. I, I also think if you're, if you're someone who takes a lot of risks um, and uh, decides to deliberately leave your comfort zone frequently, um, then you also learn. You learn that the worst thing that can happen wasn't that bad after all uh, and actually didn't take you that long to recover and... You know, and, and, and even the hard knocks, the really hard knocks, there's always, there's always something, right? Um, you can, you can take from it. Right? Yeah, yeah that's, that's super interesting, this idea of you talking about seeing things as they are and this kind of realistic perspective around optimism in, in the sense that maybe being a true optimist is not being blind to actually things as they are, in, in which case, you, you, I guess that's the difference between someone who's, you know, just uh, dreaming or, or, or their optimism is, is disconnected from reality, in which case does it, does it provide any, any benefit? Yeah, and I think that's important as well, but just professionally, and I see it with Where's My Transport a lot, 
We do some difficult things deliberately, and we often do them with, with, without all the information that you would want as a normal human being before you were asked to do something like that. And so um, I think it is, it's, it's not so much being, being resolutely positive. It's about understanding what you're actually looking at and being the kind of person that wants to rise above that or solve that problem or move forward or learn something or get to the next step. Yeah, it's about doing, it's about doing the next right thing and then doing the next right thing after that and then the next right thing after that and, and stringing them together. It's not about, it's not about shouting charge and, and running into danger, um, <laughs> thinking that, you know, that what's, the, what's the worst that can happen. It's a measured yeah. thing that really resonates in the sense of if you want to move forward and I think we're, you know, a lot of people listening to this, uh, hopefully, and the people that we're speaking to are certainly come, come from the worlds of design, product, technology, entrepreneur, entrepreneurialism. You can't really sort of move forward or try something without some sense of uh, optimism or reaching for some kind of learning or outcome. Otherwise you would just be in paralysis. I guess that comes back to the whole theme of, of why we want to talk about this because it, it's so important to define not only how you do something, but why you do something and what it is that you're trying to do in the first place. Yeah. And being prepared to make mistakes, um, which I think is also, uh, I, I talked to a couple of, folks in the team here, um, uh, one of them who works in our data processing team, he was talking, he said, I'm, 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 I feel, he said, I feel more optimistic and I asked him to break it down. And he said, well, I'm happier making mistakes now than I was a year ago. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. I don't, I don't know whether he feels like he stands a better chance of a better outcome, but he's happier making mistakes on the way to get there, which again, I think is a really important part of, uh, and I'm not sure you would file it under optimism, but- Interrelated, but, yeah. yeah. It's related, yeah. Of course, it's related, yeah. Yeah. Where do you get your senses of, of optimism? I would certainly say that, for me, my, my sense of optimism has been something that has been with me for as far back as my memory extends, and I feel very fortunate for that. But I think something that has been, that has come to me through nurture and that has allowed me to sort of foster that spirit of optimism um, is a disposition of gratitude. Um, I was definitely raised in a household that you could say was some combination of religious or spiritual. And for me, the thing that I really took out of all of that practice was uh, a disposition of start with what you're grateful for. And I think when you approach your experiences in life with that lens, you will find you will find the framing that will at the very least reset you if you're sitting outside of that optimistic framing at the very least it will bring you back to neutral right right it will, yeah. it will put you back centered in your shoes mm -hmm. um, and so for me i think a disposition of gratitude sits at the heart of of where that optimism is is driven from and, and julian where where are there any particular places you 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 tend to draw yeah, um, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, aside from my own experience, um, which I think is, you know, I am, I am one of those people that does go back in time and think, okay, I've been here before. What did I do? How did it work out? It's going to be okay. I think also I draw it a lot from the, the people around me. Again, where is my transport? It's, uh, we don't do things on our own, right? We tend, to, we tend to be a team tackling a particular problem. And 
the more senior you are in that team, the more people look up to you in a leadership role. And I, I get a lot of optimism from that, looking around me and seeing a bunch of smart people who want to succeed and they're looking at me and they want to be part of a, you know, a, good, a good result, uh, not, a, not a bad result. And I think also, um, and this isn't just Cape Town, but, but it, Cape Town is one of those places where you're only ever five minutes from the mountain or the ocean. And that is very hard to be depressed or pessimistic if you're sitting on the, the beach looking out at the ocean for a couple of hours. <laughs> It's, I'm it's, jealous it's, now. I'm jealous now. <laughs> I mean, whatever the weather, right? It's a very cleansing experience. Being being that close to big nature is, uh, yeah, it's very hard to 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 not find the answer you're looking for if you if you walk on the beach for a couple of hours. And and, and I think big nature is the word, isn't it? I mean, we've got Hyde Park and stuff in London, but it's <laughs> I guess it's not quite the same, right? No, it's it's good, but no, it's not the same. It's uh, big nature is uh, yeah. There's a, there's a lot to be uh, optimistic about. Uh, I don't know. It's a uh, it's it's a visceral connection. It plugs straight into you. Uh, there's not yeah. a lot you can do about it, which is nice. So you guys um, work, you know, all all over the globe. You've got a presence in, uh, well, you've mapped the transport systems in 39 countries, I, I, I believe. And you've, you, you've obviously worked in lots of different cultures and, 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 and countries. Do you find there's sort of variation in different parts of the globe around getting things done and how, how sort of optimism plays out in actually, you know, delivering, implementing things? But do you find there are sort of big cultural variations in the, in the parts of the world that you, that you work in? I think the question that you're asking uh, for me actually leads to a, a thought I had with the comment Julian was making now about it's it's hard not to find um, your way back to a disposition of optimism by spending some time walking along the beach or you know looking at nature. But I think to add to that, when you refer to observing many different cultures, it's not it's hard not to. Uh, find a disposition of optimism within yourself when you take stock and recognize just how optimistic many of the societies and communities are that we come into contact with in many of the, uh, the very lower income uh, sort of economies that we operate in. And you get to see people from Asia, through Africa, through Latin America, and you see this disposition of hope and optimism and you can see that with, you know, uh, Joe, who's, who's got very, very little uh, from a material sense. And I think when you live and work close to that, it, it helps to keep you grounded and uh, maybe keep that frame of mind quite centered. Um, that's maybe my thought just on the, on the, on the, op on the optimism front. Uh, in terms of different cultures, uh, yes, there's, I certainly have favorite traits amongst all of the many cultures that we've gotten to work with. And because of the varied investors that we have, we've, we've gotten to work, you know, with um, people from east to west. So, you know, when I'm working with the Japanese, I, I thoroughly enjoy the reasoning and the manner and the process and the tradition with which uh, communication is, is conducted and, and mm. business conducted. And, you know, when I think about the uh, Mexican team members and business partners and investors I deal with, I love the 
there's a sense of familiar, there's a sense of hospitality, and there's also a sense of people that really work very hard. And uh, yeah, those are just a few of the traits that there's, there's always positive traits that you will identify in different societies and you, you look forward to the experience of those traits when you spend time with people on those bases. Yeah, um, I think it's interesting. I mean, I came, I came to Cape Town from London and had really very little experience in um, developing markets and, and none at all in sub-Saharan Africa. And, um, and it has been very interesting. I have a couple of friends who, who, who are homeless and Terry, who's homeless, always hustling. Like the, the worst things happen to the guy. He sleeps in a park uh, nearby. Uh, it's a park where people walk their dogs. He sleeps there. He comes around first thing in the morning and terrible things have always happened to Terry. Something awful has always happened to Terry. He got beaten up or he got his phone nicked or, you know, <laughs> there's always some drama um, that's happened to Terry. But I'm my, not anymore or less so now because I know him, but, you know, initially my response was very, you know, white middle-class London. It was, oh my God, oh, are you okay? And Terry's moved on. Like, you know, it happened to him <laughs> and he's moved on. Um, and Terry's on to the next thing and he's hustling and he's got a bag full of ice pops that he wants me to put in the freezer so that they'll freeze so he can go down and sell them at the waterfront uh, the same afternoon. And can I lend him 50 rand to buy a packet of cigarettes? And he's, he's it, it's, it's, we're, we're constantly moving. And, and yeah, the, the optimism there, the, I don't know whether it's optimism. There's just a different matrix of things that people worry about. And also the time over which they worry about. Something that one of, our, one of our partners in Mexico City told me, and it's obvious when, when you hear it, but until, I'd, until he said it to me, uh, it hadn't occurred to me. And I spent some time in Mexico City with the population that we're, we are interested in. He said to me that the, the fact that they are they make very little money and they are, they're living in a, in a bracket, which is hand to mouth. It's robbed them. It's robbed them of the ability to plan, which, which was really interesting. If, if you are, if you only, if you're worried at eight o'clock in the morning, whether you will have enough money by six o'clock in the evening to feed the family, then there is no planning in your life, right? Your planning doesn't go out any further than eight hours or 10 hours. And I thought it was a really interesting idea because if, if, you, are, if you are stuck in the present, rooted in the present, um, that would be terrifying for some people I know. But actually, um, if, that is your, if that's your reality, then everything's optimistic because you're, you're working on a 12-hour cycle where anything could happen, right? Bad things and good things. Um, and so I wonder whether that's part of the the optimism that you very, very definitely feel, uh, spending time in, in townships. Don't get me wrong, there's a, there's a lot of problems, a lot of problems, um, and that's, yeah. you know, that's not a podcast, that's a, <clears throat> that's a 10 part series. Um, but yeah, spending time in townships, spending time on the periphery of these cities um, with our audience, right, with the people that we're, we're trying to, to understand and do something for, it is overwhelmingly positive experience. Um, it's very hard to come away from a day or a week or a month uh, in those environments feeling anything but like, we can do this. Like, we can do this. We can do this. It's one of the things that, that I've found consistently over the last two and a half years of working here with, with this team. Yeah, if I ever start to doubt, the quickest way to, to, to knock that on the head is to go and spend some time with the people that we're talking about. Go ride a minibus taxi. Uh, talk to some people. It's like, okay, we can do this. Uh, we have to do this. Um, yeah, very optimistic. The time horizons in which people exist and the, and the, and the planning point, as you say, it, when you say it, it's kind of obvious, but that what that would do to your outlook and mindset 
and 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 your approach would would obviously be very would be very uh, profound so 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 thinking about the 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 future of where where is my transport and the kind of work that you're doing you've obviously built up a lot of momentum uh over the years devon so this is not an overnight success you guys have been working hard at it for a, a long time when you when you start to think about where you're going and what you're doing next what are there any things that are, are, are really important in terms of when you think about the future from a, a, a strategic uh, sense is it about more impact is it about using particular types of technology is it mapping a particular type of transport that you haven't been able to so far what when you think about steering the business forward what what, what do you think is, is, is super important for you it's about staying true to the purpose that has drawn every single one of our team members to join us on this mission of empowering people to get where they want to go. Um, you know, for, for us sitting here on this call, it's easy to take freedom of movement as something you take for granted. And I would commonly refer to us as the, the two-hour commuter. Um, but when we think about the individuals that are the majority and for whom freedom of movement is not so free, uh, not so freely available, uh, be it the services, the information, be it the percentage of their income, that uh, of their monthly income that it actually takes up. Um, our work is there to empower those individuals, those five hour commuters for whom utilizing public transport, being entirely reliant on public transport, it's part of their daily reality. And so how can we make that experience slightly better? Um, there's one of our, uh, our team members, he's, uh, he's been in the mobility sector for 30, maybe 40 years. And, you know, the thing that he says has drawn him in to, to, to work with us is, what, what if we could make just a 15 minute difference the lives of every single user of informal public transportation. Mm -hmm. The point Julian made earlier is that the real theft from these individuals' lives is the ability to plan, right? Um, and again, we, we, what we were talking about is finding a silver lining in that and uh, maybe getting a sense of where that disposition of being in the present and being hopeful and being optimistic comes from. But if we are able to, through our work, give people access to a little bit more time with their family or their loved ones or, you know, at home working on something that they're passionate about. That is an incredible thing to be able to give back to a human being. And uh, uh, at the heart of our work is enabling that that happens in the world. It materializes. It can't just stay an optimistic dream, right? Uh, it has to manifest into society in a way that you can start to measure that impact. And, over this remarkably long journey, uh, which is maybe a little bit more common for uh, tech scaling startups in an emerging market as opposed to in a developed market, the, the tail tends to be a bit longer and the growth is, is, is a bit slower. Um, I would say underlying our, our purpose are sort of a, a set of core beliefs. And I think these core beliefs are part of what drive us as a team and also sort of a, a code by which we can measure our actions and our decisions that I believe is also consistent uh, with the desires of our investors, right? And that also makes a big difference ensuring that alignment exists. So uh, amongst those for us is ensuring that we 
always take a people-centric approach, right? We're not, don't, don't, don't look, look at the problem as if you're an engineer or a technologist. Don't look at the problem as a two-hour commuter. Try and genuinely live the problem as the five-hour commuter. Understand what that pain point is. They don't need another journey planner, right? That's, right. There's a reason those products aren't working, and it's not just because they don't have the necessary data. It's because they're trying to answer the wrong question. They're, they're, they're not answering to the pain point that the five-hour commuter has every day, which is one that really stems from a deep sense of uncertainty. Am I going to get there on time? Is the route that I'm taking the best route? Uh, is this the most affordable choice for me? All of these things, when you consider that that cycle, as Julian was referring to earlier, is a 12-hour cycle, the considerations that you have are different and the pains that you need to be addressed are different. And so, yes, our journey is about impacting that five-hour commuter. And uh, yeah, I would, I would say all of our decisions are centered on, are we staying true to that? Yeah, amazing. I mean, it is it is almost unimaginable to be commuting like that on a regular basis. I mean, people some people do have long commutes in the UK, but you know the the conditions on, under which those happens and the frameworks in which it happens in terms of regularity and price and consistency are are all pretty manageable. But most people do not commute anything like uh, five hours a, a day. And as you say, the the impact on someone's lives in terms of how much time they have to spend you know, with their family or doing the things that they, they want to do is, is priceless, right? Because I guess time is the most uh, valuable commodity we have uh, ultimately. Um, just moving it back to thinking about different time horizons, what, what are you optimistic about right now? Is there anything that you're particularly excited about um, maybe as a, as, as a result of, the, of what we're seeing uh, across the world or, or, or maybe maybe something which sits outside that, although it's quite hard to imagine not being touched by the pandemic in some way. So what, what are you guys optimistic about right now? So, yeah, I'm really, I'm really optimistic about um, the idea that now that informal public transport is a thing, and it wasn't two or three years ago, but it, it now is. It's not, we don't have to explain what we do anymore. Um, most of the countries that we go to, they know what we're talking about. So now it's a thing, um, and now we have... The COVID problem. Um, I wonder whether enough people at a high enough level in the right institutions are already paying attention to informal public transport so that during this crisis, this problem, they will be watching it uh, and watching how it responds and learning from it so that when they are looking to build a sustainable urban environment um, mm. and they're looking for sustainable mobility solutions, they are not simply going to go to their, their standard metro, um, bus rapid transit, and so on. I hope they'll look to the informal sector um, for lessons that they can learn there. So yeah, I'm pretty optimistic about that. And it's nice that we're, we're also in a position not just to advise, but also to, uh, to help. You know, we, we, we understand a lot about this now. You know, and we, one of the things that we're always surprised about is the, how much more we know than the government, the city government, about the commuter. They know nothing about these cases, nothing at all. They've never ridden to work with them. They've never spent any time in the living room. They know nothing about the, the, actual, the real world, the ground truth, right? The real world problem. And so, yeah, we're in a position to be part of that conversation, which is really cool. It's really cool. We might end up seeing the impact that we've been looking for and working towards. We might see it happen faster because of um, the current crisis. Yeah, it could prove to be a watershed moment. 
Uh, we're asking everyone this who comes on the, on the podcast uh, at the moment. There's a group of people who are saying, look, things are never going to be the same again. We're moving to a new normal. And there's other people who are, have an opposing view in a sense or a different view, which says things are uh, essentially going to return back to how they were before with a few bells and whistles, you know, more people remote working and, and, and so on, but, 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 but ostensibly the, the same thing. Um, do, do you guys have a view? How do you see from where you are with this global perspectives and all the different things? What, what, what's your sense in terms of a, a sort of post, post-COVID future? I think from a, from a macro standpoint, um, the majority of states, uh, you know, countries, markets, people will try and return to the, to the mean as fast as possible. And I think when you look at that, and, and that doesn't mean that we're overlooking the opportunity for a change in the status quo, there will certainly be a number of changes. We already are seeing that from a mobility standpoint in several developed markets where public space that hasn't been vacant for decades uh, because of you know, tourism and, and, and growth in some of these major cities, suddenly there's vast amounts of public space that are open and the, the yeah. government is questioning, hey, how might we repossess and repurpose the space before it is once again occupied, right? So there is definitely an opportunity created in this vacuum to do certain things differently. But I also think if you were to view this through the lens of the formal versus the informal economy and bring it a little bit closer to you know, the work that we do, uh, the formal economy has a lot more elasticity in the band of decisions that it will get to make, right? So the fact that all three of us here, uh, we have the luxury of being able to sit at home and work remotely, uh, that is a luxury, that is a privilege. And uh, for those that of, of us that have that privilege, there will be, I think, a greater degree of variance in what the status quo may look like for us in the future. And I think a lot of big corporations are, are very much questioning how they do business uh, and, and uh, the changes that they might make going to the future. On the informal economy side, there is a lot less elasticity. I mean, we see that during the time of pandemic. I think The Economist wrote a, a piece which said, you know, the lockdown, the lockdown is the same for all of us, but the consequences are not. And, uh, you know, there was a second piece that sort of, uh, it was actually written about Mexico City, and it's, it, it's sort of the, the headline to the piece was, you know, um, yes, it's all fair and well that we're in lockdown, but we as the informal economy, we will be here until this pandemic has passed or you know, something more unfortunate occurs. So um, the informal economy doesn't have that luxury of choice. It doesn't have that same degree of flexibility. And I think uh, coming back to your sort of overarching theme of optimism, uh, something to take away and be optimistic about is that at least there is a lot that we can learn out of what is already transpiring in these uh, emerging markets and the solutions that have come bottom up out of the communities. And presented themselves as being efficient in responding to whatever the current needs are. And right, being the adaptability. Specific. Yeah, and so you know, that, that, that is something to be optimistic about, that at least in that sector where we have a lot less elasticity and forgiveness uh, from an economic standpoint, um, that we actually have solutions that are available to us. But the question is, as society, as governments, as cities, 
do we recognize these solutions and become more inclusive of how we build them into the fabric of how our cities operate going into the future? And I think that the lesson that can be learned within an emerging market sense in the same way that we're observing, as I mentioned, the, the repurposing of public space in some of the, the developed markets. Yeah, so I think um, Devin hinted at it, but I think one of the things that um, we're, we are a business that works remotely. Um, we have offices in London and in Cape Town and we've got guys in Johannesburg and Devon's in Mexico City. So we're used to working remotely, not everybody, but the, the people who, who do. But it was a necessity before. It was something that we did because we, we needed to. Uh, if you need Devon on the phone, you've got to get him on, uh, on Zoom and at a particular time of day. Now that everybody's working remotely uh, and everyone is remote capable because not everybody was remote capable before, but now everybody is. Um, mm. Yeah, I think we're learning some lessons. I think, you know, one of the lessons we're learning is that actually some things are, we're less productive in some ways, we're more productive in other ways. And that's also changing over time. I think um, working fully remotely, I think would not, wouldn't be a solution for us, but yeah, I think we will, we, as a company, we are already thinking hard uh, about how we, where work we locate teams, how we work together, how we yeah. collaborate, the kind of tools, the kind of things you need to do differently. So yeah, I, I imagine that there will be um, some, some big changes in organizations like ours where, again, Devin said, we're lucky enough, right? We, we have the, we're remote yeah. capable. But, yeah, I think we're learning a lot um, and it's changing some opinions. Uh, it's changing some opinions. Yeah. If we look further out over the next two, three, four years, what, what are you optimistic about uh, when we think about the, the future? Are there any particular things which stand, stand out for yourselves? We, as you have spoken about, you know, we've, we've mapped 39 cities around the world and with each one we've gotten to learn something new and it's resulted in us being in a, in a position where we are incredibly adaptive and uh, now sort of coming out of a, a period where we've also done extensive research across markets in, in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, more deeply understanding uh, the commuter pain points, we also are at a place, uh, something of an inflection point where we, we understand far more deeply how to bring our technology and our data together to have a real impact on that five hour commuter. And um, when I think about so you mean start bringing the time down actually so you've 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 made the invisible visible and it's now what you actually do with that is that, is that what you're saying? Starting to make the benefit more real for the yep. commuter out of our work as opposed to uh, our benefit being for the public transport operators and public transport authorities. So bringing that closer to home. And I think that is something that is a driving force within the entire team, given that, uh, as I referred to earlier, I spoke you know, about our purpose and that, it, that sits at the nucleus of this, of this machine. And uh, yeah, it's, it's very encouraging if we take those things that we're good at and we execute them in the world, we will manifest something over the course of the next three years that will truly touch millions of lives. And for me, that is an incredibly exciting thing and something I feel very privileged to be a part of. Um, yeah, you can hear it. You can hear it in your voice. Yeah, absolutely. Julian, how about you looking, looking further out? What are, you, what are you optimistic about over the next few years? 
Yeah, so I, I have fewer years in the business than Devon does, but um, that's a big one for me. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing it work, um, making a dent in the problem. One of the things that this business has done um, and this team has done, and it predates me, is they've had to get really good at a bunch of different things along the way and solve a bunch of different problems to, to be able to have a shot at this one. Right? They've earned themselves a shot at this one. Right. And, um, and I'm excited about that. I think we, we're going in the next two or three years, we're going to find out, uh, we're going to see it work. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to make a dent. Um, and I'm excited about that. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Um, I'm also genuinely um, excited to, to, to see how the cities where we spend more of our time, um, because there are some that we, where we collect data and, and um, we don't necessarily go back uh, regularly, and there are some where we spend a lot of time. Um, and you get to know those cities and you get to know the population that we're talking about. I'm also genuinely excited to see how, how new investment in these cities again we we're close to now i knew nothing about this three years ago but you know i can talk to you fluently now about the investments that um, the world bank and and other development finance institutions are making in different in different cities and, and why and how i'm looking forward to it we're involved in the the un sustainable development goals um we sit as advisors on a couple of different committees on the one hand again coming right back to optimism for you on the one hand those those conversations about the sdgs Boy, you could come away super depressed um, at how slowly everything's going and how little progress that the that, that different countries are making with the SDGs. Um, or you could come away super optimistic because there is a conversation, the right people are in that conversation, and three out of five of the conversations are useful. They're constructive, they're positive, they're, they're heading in the right direction. Um, being part of that is exciting. And so independently of mobility and public transport and all the things that we, we're doing directly, where is my transport? Yeah, just being part, having an ear in that conversation, being able to listen in. And in the cities where we spend a lot of time to be able to see on the ground, actual change, it happens very, very slowly, but it happens. And irrespective of being a part of that um yeah just being in a position where you get to see it you get to hear it you get to be part of some of those conversations i'm looking forward to that i think the next three to five years um the, there is a lot of opportunity they call it the majority world now right um, when i was a kid we called it the third world and then it was the emerging world and the developing world now it's the majority world there's a reason for that there is a huge amount of opportunity in this majority world. Um, there are a huge number of organizations who are already here and looking at that opportunity. Um, and I think there's, we're gonna see a lot of change in the next three to five years. And that is an optimistic view. Um, you will chuck a stone out here and you'll find nine people who'll disagree with me. But I believe, I believe in that opportunity. There is a huge amount of opportunity here in South Africa. There's a huge amount of opportunity in the markets where we work. And yeah, I'm, I think the next three to five years, we're going to see a step change in the development in some areas um, in these in these countries in these markets, and that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to be just like I say to be on the ground and be able to see it. Cool. Well, I think that's a marvelous place to end the conversation. I want to thank both of you for taking part in this uh, episode. Thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. We've covered lots of different topics and and ground. It's been super interesting and lots to take away. Uh, about optimism from having a realistic point of view to the role of nature in keeping you optimistic to where you guys are in terms of having earned the right and got a, a big handle on how things work so you can actually 
as as you describe it, Nevin, hitting that inflection point and and delivering the next phase of impact over the next few years, which is going to touch uh, so many people's everyday lives. I think that's that that sounds absolutely amazing. Thank you very much, guys. It's been a Thank pleasure. Thank you, Lee. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for listening. My name is Lee Sankey, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Daw's Hybrid Intelligence Podcast. Please subscribe to hear about new episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can get in touch with your comments and suggestions via our email, contact at dawglobal.com. And you can also sign up to our email list to hear about articles and events over at dawglobal.com. Thanks again, and until next time, keep well.